Thank you, Daryl. Good morning. Welcome to Ambassador Church. It's good to have our second service uh, here at 1045. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 25. 1 Samuel chapter 25. And we're going to be looking at this uh, story together. And it's an interesting story because in many ways, this story reminds us of something regarding uh, the goodness and the grace of God. So turn with me there. Uh, let me turn in my Bible here. First Samuel chapter 25. So in this story, we're going to be looking at a uh, verse 23 in, in particular. So if you turn there, it says, when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed before David to her fa- uh, with her face to the ground. And she fell at his feet and said, my Lord, let the blame me be on alone. Please let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. May my Lord pay no attention to the wicked man Nabal. He is just like his name. His name is fool, and folly goes with him. But as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my master sent. Now, since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, may your enemies and all who intend to harm my master be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my master be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for, for my master because he fights the Lord's battle. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my master will be bound securely in the bundle of the living, uh, living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as pockets of a sling. When the Lord had, has done for my master every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him leader over Israel, my master will not have his conscience. It's a staggering burden of needless bloodshed of having avenged himself. And when the Lord has brought my master success, remember your servant. Let us pray. Father God, as we continue the story of David, uh, we are reminded in this story of the important fact that As we deal with people around us, there will be some people that we're going to have a difficult time with. And as these difficult people come into our lives, uh, that you often send a messenger like Abigail to remind us of what the gospel has in store and how we live our lives in the midst of difficult situations. I pray, Lord, that you would remind us of this story today as we think about in our own circumstances of the people that we have to deal with day in and day out. And so we ask for your goodness and grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you this morning, have you ever dealt with a difficult person? Now you think about this for most of us, that there's always people in our lives that cause our lives uh, to have a, a difficult time. It could be an employee, it could be a boss, it could be a coworker, it could be a classmate, it could be somebody that is a family member. There's always people in our lives that causes some level of difficulty. But who's the most difficult person? Well, uh, according to a a recent survey, if you ask anyone what is the worst part of your job, the answer usually falls with one person. 
Uh, you might have guessed it. It's your boss. Now, when you think about your boss, uh, sometimes some of us have had people like this who just kind of constantly berate us or yell at us. Uh, according to an uh, article called Un- Eight Unsettling Facts About Bad-, Bad Bosses, your boss is the worst part of your job. According to the survey, over 75% of the workplace says that their bad boss is the worst part of the workplace. If you think about it, if you've ever had a manager or a director or a leader that always sort of uh, caused you a grief, that, that if you had to choose between a raise or between getting rid of that boss, what would you choose? Well, according to the study, they said this, that they would rather choose a new boss over a raise. If you think about how difficult life can be, with people that are over you or peace, people beside you. It could be a, a, a somebody like even a neighbor who's always causing irritation in your life. How do you deal with people like that? Uh, in one particular story, this man talks about a really bad neighbor. He said, my house was yellow. My neighbor wouldn't stop complaining about how he hated the color. Then one time when I was away on a business trip, uh, he had it painted white and then tried to stick me with the bill. Imagine coming home and your whole house is a different color because you had a difficult neighbor. Well, difficult people aren't just, uh, just they're just difficult to deal with. Uh, somebody once said, a, a pastor friend of mine, if it wasn't for people, ministry would actually be fun. And he was describing some difficult people that he had to deal with. Well, for us, sometimes God allows us to be in the situation where we have to deal with people that we may not even like, who are difficult. And in this particular story, we're going to see that David encounters a man like this. And it's, it's, it's really important as part of the story is that David's life in many ways is, is sort of an example of all of humanity that at some point in our life, there's going to be people that we just do not like or that causes difficulty in our lives. And in this particular story, in 1 Samuel 25, it, it, there's three main characters. One is, is David, of course, and we're following his journey uh, from uh, this little shepherd boy who's been appointed or anointed as king to eventually he's going to be king. But in between that, there's this journey of what we call sanctification, this journey of becoming a person after God's own heart. And so David goes in in chapter 25. It's a very important chapter because this is now the transition from Samuel being the spiritual leader to now David becoming the leader of Israel. In verse 1, it says this, now Samuel died. It sort of begins with that sort of climactic uh, word uh, of reminding us now there's a transition. Samuel, the man who was the prophet of God, who was leading Israel, is dead. And all of Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him at his home. And so what this also signifies is this. Samuel has died and now David will become the next spiritual as well as the political leader of Israel. But there's a problem. We know that uh, the story of David, uh, that even though God had anointed him to be the next king, that there was a man named Saul, who the people wanted to be their king. And Saul was a man, instead of pursuing God's heart, he was pursuing his own. He was a self-centered man. And we know that Saul was uh, jealous of David. 
And so the story of David goes from a little shepherd boy to conquering Goliath and then eventually becoming a part of, of, of the king's uh, a royal kind of uh, army. But David now is being pursued by Saul. He is now a, a refugee. He is literally now on the run from Saul. And as he's running, one of the things that he's doing, he has an army of about 600 uh, of men who are following him. And one day in verse uh, 1, or verse uh, uh, chapter 25, David moved down from the desert of Moab. And a certain man in Moab who had a property there at Carmel was very wealthy. Here's the second character. David, the future king, and this wealthy landowner. Now, it's interesting that this man is described in terms of his wealth by what he has. He has a thousand goats, he says. And he had 3,000 sheep, which he was shearing at Carmel. His name was Nabal. Now, what makes this story kind of almost humorous is that his name literally means a fool. He is a man who is wealthy, who is arrogant, who thinks he knows everything. He's a living narcissist. He has everything going for him. He's, he's probably very miserly, very selfish. But then there's a third character. In the midst of this, Dumbal, in many ways, is a symbol of, of, of foolishness in the world. People who live their lives apart from God, who build their wealth apart from God. And then, all of a sudden, the third character is introduced. Her name is Abigail. His wife was Abigail. Now, I love how she is described. She was intelligent and beautiful woman. But her husband, a Calebite, was surly and mean in his dealings. In this contrast, you have this man who is this, this miserly person, who is this evil person, and then on the other hand, you have this intelligent, godly, beautiful woman. You know, throughout the Bible, one of the interesting uh, themes that comes up is that God often brings these women who are sort of the symbol of, of grace, who are not uh, welcomed or not even appreciated in society, and yet these women are the ones who display grace. And so we see this all the way from even the character like Ruth or, or like Esther. And in this particular story is Abigail. She's intelligent. She's beautiful. She's godly. She's sort of the Proverbs 31 type of woman. But something goes wrong. In verse 4, it says, While David was in the desert, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So here's what would happen in the uh, Near Eastern world. That if you wanted protection, what you would do is you would exchange protection for provision. So David sends his men to basically protect his sheep while the sheep were, were being sheared. In other words, what David was offering was, hey, I will help you if you would help us. And, and that was very common in the Near Eastern world. It was, it was an act of hospitality. David's not out there. He could have easily sent his army to uh, basically take all the sheep. But David doesn't do that. He, he comes with a, a gesture of goodwill. And then it says in, in verse 4, while David was in the desert, he heard Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to him, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say, Long live to you, long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. In other words, David is just going there, uh, act of goodwill. He's just saying, Hey, let me help you. Maybe even have some of the, our men help you with your sheep. 
And then he says in verse 7, Now I hear it is sheep, sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. So David was really being very generous and very kind. But notice this in verse 9. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Now, David is saying this, give him my name. Because everybody in the whole region knows that David is the next king. Samuel has made that declaration. So it's not like David is an anonymous person. He's a celebrity. He's already killed Goliath. Everybody knows who David is. But Nabal, in verse 10, answered David's servants. Who is this David? Who is the son of Jesse? My many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I've slaughtered from my shears and give it to the men from who knows where? Now, of course, Nabal knows who David is. Everybody knew David was. Not only does he know David, but he, but he actually mocks him he, because he knows who his heritage is. He's the son of Jesse. The, 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 the rumors have gotten around. Now, Nabal is such a foolish man. He's arrogant. He's self-centered. All he thinks about is himself. And so he says, hey, I'm not going to do anything for you. So he sends the men away. And then it says this, verse 12, David's men turned around and went. When they arrived, they reported every word. And David said to his men, put on your swords. So they put on their swords, and David put on his. About 400 men were with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. In other words, David is ready for battle. He's ready to put on the sword and kill Nabal. Now, let's stop the story right there for a second. Imagine if you were David. How would you respond? I think for most of us, we would respond the way David responded. In other words, we would go, if somebody does something to us, our natural response is to do something to them. That's human nature. That's called justice. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Because our human nature wants the sense of justice. If somebody wrongs us, the temptation is to wrong them, not only the same way, even worse. Every uh, kung fu movie or superhero movie is based on that premise, that we want our sense of justice. So David's ready to go into battle. And if you think about this, David and Nabal are really the two kinds of people in the world, right? We have David who is trying to be a religious person, trying to do good. And then we have Nabal who's sort of this, the epitome of this world leader who is arrogant, who's wealthy, who doesn't care about anybody else except himself. But there's a third person. And Abigail is the wife of Nabal. And it says in verse 14, one of the servants told Nabal's wife, Abigail, David sent basically messengers and they did not mistreat us the whole time but your husband sent it away. And then it says in verse 18, Abigail lost no time. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five, uh, five dressed sheep, five sheaves of, of uh, roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisin, 200 cakes of price. She is actually preparing this banquet and loaded them on donkeys. And she says, go ahead of them. And I'll follow you. But here's the funny thing. She doesn't tell her husband, uh, Nabal. And she came riding in, and she makes this request. Now, one of the things about the story that I'm going to tell you is that in this story, we see how the gospel, how the Christian gospel actually is now foreshadowed in this story. But it also gives us an interesting lesson about people. 
that there are people like Nabal in our lives. So how do you deal with people like this? Abigail is going to give us four things to think about. In her particular request, there are four things she's going to say. She's going to talk about acceptance, prayer, grace, and then fourth, forgiveness. So I want to spend the next few moments talking about these things. When she comes and she presents to David, in verse 20, she came riding on her donkey into the mountain ravine, and there was David and his men descending from her, and she met them. In other words, David's on the march for battle. And she comes with her donkeys, with all the meals, and David had just said, it's been useless at all my watching over this fellow's property in the desert, so nothing of his was missing. In other words, the agreement was, I'll protect, you provide. But he paid me back evil for good. And David is so incensed. Look at this in verse 20. May God deal with David be ever so severely. If by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. In other words, he's swearing upon his name. He is so angry. He says, I'm going to kill every single male person. But then Abigail enters into the picture. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David... She quickly got off her donkey. Notice what she does. She bows down before David with her face to the crown, which was actually very common in the middle uh, near Eastern culture as a sign of respect and humility. And she fell at his feet and said, My Lord, let the blame me on, on me alone. Instead of blaming her husband. By the way, you think about how miserable Abigail's life might have been. This godly, intelligent woman is married to this foolish man. And, and most likely, it was an arranged marriage. She was probably given when she was a young lady or young girl. And so she had to live with this arrogant guy all her life. And, and she probably did not really like him very much. And yet, she speaks on his behalf. And she says in verse 25, 24, my Lord, let the, let the uh, blame be on me alone. Please let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. In these next four things she says, reminds us of how we can deal with people like Nabal in our lives. The first thing she says is this. She says, accept him. Verse 25, may my Lord pay no attention to that wicked Nabal. He is like his name. His name is fool and folly goes with him. But as for me, your servant, I did not see the men that my master sent. The first thing that we see in this story is basically what she's pleading is this man is a fool and just accept him for, for that. Uh, she's not defending him. She's not uh, saying something like, oh, you know, he's, a, he's actually a really good guy. She's just saying, accept him. He's, he's, he's what he is. He's, he's a fool. And I think in this story, the first principle is this. You just have to accept that some people will always be difficult. You know, that's a hard thing for us as Christians, right? Because we, we believe in the story of redemption and a story of transformation, but, but there's some people that we're going to be dealing with that will always be difficult. And no matter how much grace we show that person, there's always going to be Nabals in our life. So how do you deal with that? How do you deal with a fool or a foolish person? And the answer to this you just have to accept that there are some people like that. Most of us have difficult people in our lives. Three-quarters of young adults, 75%, two-thirds of older adults, 67%, name at least one person in their life who makes their life very difficult. 
If I were to survey us in this room, I think most of us would raise our hands. There's some people, whether it's a, a, a relative, whether it's a boss, whether it's a coworker, that's really just hard to deal with. And so we just have to come to the point of acceptance that there are people like that. Now, some of you are just kind of wrestling and say, well, I, I don't want to accept it. What do I do? Well, here's the other point. Accept that you are also difficult. Now, some of you are saying, I'm not a difficult person. <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm an easygoing, kind of a chill individual. If you want to see a difficult person, look in the mirror. Because every one of us innately has some level of difficulty in us. And we make other people's lives miserable. And the reason for that is there's a human condition that universally all of us have, and that's called sin. And because sin is a part of our being, we can be very difficult. And the first thing we as Christians have to recognize is this, that we are difficult people. Uh, one writer said, difficult people are everywhere. Hostile, rude, mean, selfish, impatient, uncaring, and worse than that. What may be shocking to many of us is that we have and can act the same as the people that we find difficult. Are we always hostile, rude, mean, selfish, impatient, and caring? No. But we all have the seeds of all such attitudes in our hearts. Therefore, the first step in helping us deal with difficult people is understanding that we are not better than such people by nature. You know, that's, that's a hard fact for us to realize. And, and the more difficult you are, the less likely you're uh, willing to accept that fact. But self-worship really is at the heart of all sin, isn't it? Greed, lust, selfishness, fear, all these forms are forms of self-worship. And what we do is all we really do at, at the very core of our sin is take care of ourselves first. And that's what Nabal's doing. The reason he was a fool was because all he cared was about himself. He didn't care about his wife. He didn't care about his men. He had no forethought into what would happen if David got angry. David was going to be the next king of Israel. He didn't care. And there's some people just like that. Accept that, but also accept the fact that you are one of those people too. But here's the second thing that she says. She appeals in prayer. She prays for God's resolution rather than human solution. Uh, notice what uh, she says in the next verse. She falls at, her, uh, at the feet uh, of David, and she begins in verse 26, says, Now since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your hands, as surely as the Lord lives, as you live, may your enemies and all who intend to harm my master be like Nabal. And let this gift, which your servant has brought, be given to the men who follow you. The second appeal is, is kind of interesting. That she prays for God's solution rather than a human solution. And in this prayer, she's basically saying this. Um, David, consider this. That let's focus on what God's going to do rather than what you want to do. What she's appealing to is, is more of a supernatural perspective. Abigail knew that from a human uh, sense of justice that, that he uh, demands uh, justice. It demands vengeance because I think human nature, vengeance is mine, says me. One of the hardest things to trust God with is justice because human justice is always tainted by self-righteousness. 
Human justice is always tainted by our own self-worth. And what David was, was he's planting revenge because he had been hurt. And so often in our world, that's how people deal with wrongs. If you've been wrong, you will do wrong to that person. There's one of the saddest stories I read many years ago. It was about a man named uh, Ronald Shannabarger. And he planned his revenge against his wife. And his revenge was the most uh, hideous thing you could ever imagine. That she, more than anything in her life, she wanted a baby. So he fathered their son. And then when that baby was a few months old, he killed her, the baby. As an act of vengeance. What sin does is that it stores in our heart a sense of resentment and bitterness. And this man had no care for that infant. All he cared about was getting back. And, and, and if you think about David, I think that's the way David was thinking until she intervened and she reminded that God is at work beyond this. And as Christians, we have the ability to think beyond just our human reaction, our human emotion, to remember that it is God who avenges. But there's something in this story that is, is also an important part, is that she gives David something. She gives him a gift. Notice what it says here in this next verse. And let this gift which your uh, servant has brought to my master be given to the men who follow you. Now what makes this uh, a kind of a neat demonstration here is that she did not need to do this. In other words, she could have just, if you think about it from a human justice perspective, her husband's just a mean guy. She could have just let David deal with the situation and she would have been rid of her husband. But you know what she is doing is she is demonstrating the biblical concept of grace. The, most, the thing that this man did deserve was grace. And yet she demonstrates grace by going to David, not only to save him, but to save every single person in that, um, the, the group of people that they were overseeing. And if you think about as she's presenting this gift, not only is she giving David something that he doesn't deserve, but she's also giving to her husband something that he, he doesn't deserve. Somebody defined grace as this. Grace is unmerited favor, undeserved favor. But also grace is, the, is something else. It's also not getting what we deserve. Nabal deserved death. But he didn't get it because he was demonstrated by grace. And, and you know, if you think about the most powerful example of what the Christian faith is, is that when the gospel comes into our lives, it makes us gracious people. Because as Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 reminds us, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not a, uh, of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that anyone can boast. See, the world lives by the law. Christians, we live by God's grace. You know, uh, Ray Ortland, who's a pastor many years ago, wrote this. He says, we were married to Mr. Law. Mr. Law, he was a good man in his way. But he did not understand our weakness. He came home every evening and said, how was your day? Did you do what I told you? Did you make the kids behave? Did you waste any time? Did you completely complete uh, everything I told you to do on the to-do list? So many demands and expectations. And as hard as we tried, we couldn't be perfect. We could never satisfy him. We forgot that, uh, that things were important to him. 
We let our children misbehave. We failed in other ways. It was a miserable marriage because Mr. Law always pointed out our failings. And the worst of it, he was right. His remedy was always the same. Do better tomorrow. We didn't because we couldn't. Then one day, Mr. Law died. And, at, and we remarried, this time to Mr. Grace. Our new husband comes home every evening and the house is a mess. The children are naughty. Uh, dinner is burning on the stove and we have other men uh, who visited the house and we didn't care. Still, he sweeps us into his arms and says, I love you. I chose you. I died for you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And our hearts melt. We didn't understand such love. We expect him to despise us and to reject us and to humiliate us. But he treats us so well. We're so glad to belong to him now and forever. And we belong to fully please him. Being Mr. Law never changes us. But being married to Mr. Grace changes us from deep within. You know what Abigail is showing? The beauty of the gospel. And the beauty of the gospel is this. That we do not deserve God's favor. But because God chose to give us love despite our failings, that's what grace is. And what Abigail's reminding David is God is at work. David, you don't need to take the matter in, into your own hands. And I think what she was reminding David is this, that there's a greater purpose that God has for you. So how do you deal with people that are difficult? I think the natural response is, is to do them wrong, but the biblical response is, is to do them good to demonstrate grace, even if they treat and mistreat you. But there's one last part of the story is this. What she appeals to is forgiveness. Notice this in verse 28. Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord will certainly make a lasting destiny for my master because he fights the Lord's battle. Let no wrongdoing found in him as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing to take your life, the life of my master will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies will hurt, will hurl away as from a pocket of a sling. Kind of interesting that she uses a sling as a metaphor because that's what David was using to kill Goliath. And yet what she's reminding us is this, that forgiveness has to be central to pursuing God. The thing about us as Christians is this, that we, more than anything else, have to be forgiving people. And here's where forgiveness is, is, is connected to. What she's appealing to this is, why can we forgive? Because our sense of justice does not want to forgive anybody. Our sense of justice wants to get back at them, because that's the way we live our lives. Somebody cuts us off, we want to cut, cut them off as well. But forgiveness sees something bigger. And what she's appealing to is this, David. Even though you want to get back, that's, this is a minor thing. Your reputation may be ruined. Imagine if other wealthy landlords heard what you did. Even though you deserve to kill Nabal, you didn't do that. Everybody's going to say, okay, David's actually a good man. But if you kill my husband, guess what's going to happen? Rumors are going to spread. And so what she was appealing to was, was, was David. This is such a small thing. But she was also appealing to something even more eternal. He says, God is in control of your life, David. God's going to make you king. This is such a small little thing. You forgive because in some sense, God has forgiven you. And I think for us as Christians, when we deal with people that are hard to deal with, we have to have a heart of forgiveness. 
Yes, they, they will hurt you. Yes, they will speak wrongly of you. But we forgive first because we recognize that we have been forgiven ourselves. And because we recognize that we are offenders before God, that we can help and forgive other people. I think one of the greatest stories of the gospel is this. That when you look at your life, all of us are pronounced guilty. And yet God in His grace, even though you're guilty, has taken upon the guilt upon Himself and the punishment of that guilt upon Himself. You know when Christianity really shines is when it's unexpected. This past week, there was an interesting um, court case that many of you have heard of, Dallas, Texas. Amber Geyer was an off-duty police officer in Dallas. She entered a home and was a man who was standing in the dark. She thought it was her apartment. She took out a gun and she shot the man, thinking that he was a burglar. She killed him. This past week, a year later, October 1st, she was found guilty of murder. October 2nd, she was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Now, no matter what you think of the, 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 uh, of the particular opinion, something happened here in this story that was truly amazing. Botham Jean's brother, Brant, was allowed at the end of the sentencing to give a victim impact statement. And he looked at the woman, former police officer Amber Geyer, directly. And what he said reminded us of the beauty of, of, of the gospel. He said this, If you are truly are sorry, I can speak for myself. I forgive. And I know if you go to God and ask Him, He will forgive you too. And I don't think anyone else can say it. Again, I, I'm speaking for myself, but I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I presently want the best for you. I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't want even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what Botham would want for you. And the best would be to give your life to Jesus Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I'm, I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that Botham would want you to do. And again, I love you as a person, and I don't wish anything bad for you. And I don't know if this is possible, but can I give you a hug, please? He stands up at the end of the statement. And he walks over and he hugs the very woman that killed his brother. Because Brandt saw something more eternal. Whether it was an accident or not, he forgave. Because he realized that he himself was a forgiven person. And I think in that story, when everybody watched, everybody started to weep because they realized something beautiful about the gospel. You see, the gospel changes us, transforms us, makes us into different people. Not because we ourselves have the ability to do that but because God in us creates in us a new heart. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. Today, we're going to be celebrating communion. And there's no greater symbol for us than to take this bread and to take this cup to remind us of something eternal. That God loved you so much that he was willing to break himself for you. At this time, I'm going to have the ushers come up, and I want us to bow in a word of prayer. And I want you to think, when you deal with difficult people, don't look at others, but look at yourself. That the most difficult person in the world is actually the one that you look in the mirror. Nobody sees the condition of our hearts. But the reality is this, that God died for difficult people like us. God's body was broken so that we can have healing and wholeness. Father, as we prepare to take communion, prepare our hearts now to realize it's not the other person, but it's us. That you died for me in my sinfulness, in my selfishness. 